scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 2 from verses 1 to 10. Ephesians chapter 2 from verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us live made us alive, and Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works, so that one, no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, which we heard read just now. In that, in that passage, Paul refers to you, all of us, and we. And when he does so, he's really describing the story of every true Christian. As I hope we'll see in a moment, every true Christian can say, this is my story. I wonder if this is your story. It's the wondrous story of which we were singing earlier, right at the beginning. Now, many people will dismiss this story that Paul tells, which is true history, the story of every true Christian, just as they will dismiss that first story I told, but through the wider picture of God's great plan of salvation going right through from creation, fall and redemption. I'm thinking of people like Professor Richard Dawkins and David Attenborough. Now these men have a truly deep knowledge and appreciation of the natural world that's far beyond mine, and yet in spite of that they don't believe in God, they say. They'll tell you there's really no complication in the plot of history. It's all a story of steady evolutionary progress, the steady survival of the fittest. Now, some of you have heard my summary of this story in the past. Not a very unflattering summary of how they say the true story of this world is. I'm going to mention it this morning because it's a story all, all of us is constantly hearing people tell you whether it's at school or at college or through modern communications media. They may not exactly spell it out, but it's all assumed. It's tacitly assumed. It's presupposed. This is your story, they say. Of course, neither of these gentlemen I mentioned just now would, I'm sure, tell that their take on humanity's story. They wouldn't express it the way I'm about to. And I didn't make up this version myself. I pinched it from somebody else. Now, today's popular story about humanity, actually it's in three stages. The story goes like this. You, that is humanity, came from the goo. That is what people call the primeval soup. And you came from the, you came from the goo via a long spell in the zoo. That is the long evolutionary process. Now, 
Many people who say they believe this story thankfully don't live out the logic of it, the practical implications of it. That's because they, being divine image bearers, because they're human beings, cannot, when it, com- when it comes to the crunch, can't live that kind of story out in everyday life. Because the logical result, implication of that version of humanity's story, in the end it means that life has absolutely no meaning and in, is in the end valueless. Someone spelled it out grimly this way. The natural world is just a collection of atoms. Some of us like our collection of collections of atoms in the form of trees and meadows. Others prefer cars and fuel. Who's to say which is better? There's no value to be attached to, to the world other than what any individual cares to give to it. And no individual matters more than another. It just comes down to who has the power to make their values win. And there are people in the media make, using their power to make this truth, as they call it, win. But can you seriously imagine? Imagine a pregnant Mrs. Dawkins, wife of Dr. Richard Dawkins. Having, imagine her having a baby shower. Assuming she held the same beliefs as her husband, she would send out invitations to celebrate the anticipated arrival of the latest random configuration of carbon atoms. People don't live like that, really, do But Christians believe, and deep down, each one of us, our common humanity shouts at us that the goo to you via the zoo story is not our true story. And if you think it is humanity's true story, I'd like you this morning to open your mind, especially if you think of yourself as a liberal-minded person, to consider what we Christians say with conviction is the true account of our human story, of history that is his story, God's story, as it is told, told in God's story, God's his story book, the Bible. Unlike the film The Matrix, to be living in a goo to you via the zoo story is not to be the victim of an elaborate deception created by an evil cyber intelligence. Rather, it's to be the victim of an elaborate deception created by what the Apostle Paul names in today's Bible reading as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. However, many people today like many people today, who think we are really living in the human story according to Richard Dawkins or David Attenborough, to them I would say this. I'd invite you right now to do what you do every time you read a book. Watch a film whose worldview is different from yours, the one you inhabit or, or you think you inhabit. If you read or watch a fairy tale, say, you know that... You don't really live in a world of goblins and giants and talking animals. You don't expect to go up Hounslow High Street and pass a hobbit, although from my experience of Hounslow High Street, who knows who you might reach. If you watch a sci-high movie, you know you're not really living in a world of, say, the Vulcans or the Klingons, and you're not in danger of being captured by the Borg, from whom resistance is futile. When you read or watch, you suspend your disbelief, don't you? And you allow yourself to enter for a while at least into into an alternative worldview and try to experience that worldview for yourself. So if you reckon you're truly open-minded, I invite you now to suspend your current disbelief, enter the world of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, a story I believe, as I'm sure the Lord Jesus, who is the truth, has risen from the dead, not simply 
a Christian worldview I'm going to give you, or our truth, but the truth, real history, his story, God's story, of what could be your story too if you were to become a real Christian. You could call the Christian story a drama in three acts. So where do I want to go this morning? First of all, I'm going to give you a summary of the story, as Paul tells it here. Secondly, I'm going to reveal the secret behind the story. And thirdly, I'll try to draw out the significance, the so what of the story, how it bears on each one of us here today. So are you sitting comfortable, whether you're a Christian or not yet, not yet Christian, so are you sitting comfortably, words that will only resonate with people as old as me, because this story actually, while you may be sitting comfortably, it's not very comfortable in part. So let's begin, that's a warning. First of all, let me give you a summary of this story, looking at verses 1 to 7 of Ephesians 2 particularly. As I said just now, it's a drama in three acts. It begins in verses 1 to 3 with what you once were, in your guilty past. I'm afraid it's not a comfortable, it's not a pretty picture. It's a picture of people who are deceived, as we read in verse 2, following the course of the ways of this world and the ruler, just hoodwinked and deceived by the father of lies, the ruler of this world. And not an artificial intelligence, but a fallen angel intelligence. And it's a little wonder that people fall for things like uh, the goo to you via the zoo story. The Bible says, when you think about the sort of people who are, de- who are deceived, they describe there, these deceived people are disobedient people. Those who are disobedient, says Paul, go this line. And so I suppose you could say it's a willing deception. If I want to cut loose from obeying God and having him in my life, then I'll allow myself to be convinced by deception such as, there is no God if it makes me feel comfortable about my present lifestyle and means I'm unaccountable to anybody for what I do, as long as I'm not caught by other people, of course. After all, without with God all things are possible, but without God all things are permissible. But the reality is that God knows all, God sees all, and his infallible all-seeing heart monitor gives us a graphic picture of what is going on in the very heart of our personalities. Not a very pleasant x-ray ultrasound is it verse three all of us at one time are gratifying the cravings of our flesh following its desires and thoughts and sadly act one doesn't end there in a word we who are deceived we who are disobedient were by nature spiritually dead dead in our sins and transgressions is how Paul puts it here and under sentence of eternal death. In the Bible, death doesn't just mean the dissolution of the physical body. It means a never-ending consciousness of the principled, proportionate, yet passionate and personally directed, just, deserved anger of God for those who, in Paul's words here in verse 3, not my words, the Bible's words, were by nature deserving of wrath. Yet, thanks be to God. If you're a real Christian, things are very different for you now. You've now, blessed be God, moved from Act 1, what you once were in your guilty past, to Act 2. This is verses 5 and 6. What you now are in your ongoing present. You've been brought from death 
to life. You're alive spiritually, alive to God. Becoming a Christian isn't about turning over a new leaf, doing your best. It's about receiving a new life. It's not about trying to become a nice person. It's becoming a new person with new resources to enable you to live God's way, which is always the best way, not your way, the way you think is best. God brings you out of slavery into liberty. He brings you from condemnation to justification. He rescues you from being on the path to destruction and places you on the path to salvation, which in this present, ongoing present, means becoming more and more like Jesus as you're open to his spirit changing you. And we see what that means more practically in a little. In a little. Now you're a spiritually alive, you're actually living in two realms. You're living at your place, like these are at Ephesus, but also you're in the heavenly places. We can't go into them in detail. It's a phrase that occurs five times where Jesus is reigning, where you're placed in, in, a, in an enviable position, and yet there are evil forces there. It's, you're alive spiritually. One thing i just point out, because there's too much ground to cover this morning to go into detail, to linger on this, even if in the world you're a nobody and nobody will give you up a seat for you on the bus or the tube, in Christ, we read in chapter 2, verse 6, we're seated in heavenly places. And uh, reminds me of the Narnia Chronicles. In England, the Pevensey children are just school children. In Narnia, though, they are kings and queens. And once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king and queen in Narnia. Once saved, always saved. Now, I mentioned the future just now, and that prompts me to move on to Act 3 of this drama. And we learn there that the best is yet to be for you if you're a Christian. You've heard about your guilty past, what you once were. You've heard about your ongoing present, what you now are and are, ought to be. Now, Act 3 opens up before you. In verse 7, encapsulates it. Your glorious prospects, what lies ahead for you, are your are glorious prospects, what you will one day be. And what you will one day be is put so pointedly by the Apostle Paul here. You will be, as he puts it, somebody upon whom God will, in the coming ages, go on unendingly showing the incomparable riches of his grace and his kindness. I I haven't the time to elaborate on this this morning very much. In any case, we're thinking about that which eye hasn't yet seen. An ear hasn't yet heard. To, be cut, to borrow a phrase, uh, even the Apostle John, when writing under divine inspiration, no less, about what we will be, writes with a kind of reverent agnosticism, I suppose you could call it, about our glorious prospects this way. This way. What we will be has not yet been made known. We do know some things, of course. Unlike so many other religions, the Bible tells us that our future will be a bodily existence with glorified bodies and a gloriously renewed physical creation. Verse 7 to me says this, so at any rate, that it will be like this life, an existence in time. We will go on experiencing a succession of events. Notice Paul refers to the ages, plural, to come. After all, that seems to be, if there's going to be music in the coming age, music needs time, doesn't it? Going back to Narnia for a moment, my mind, is it too fanciful to suppose that uh, that succession of experiences will be something like how they are depicted in the last of the chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, that goes like this. 
And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. There I think we too will leave this drama in three acts this morning. Now, of course, all I've said leaves a big, nagging question. How come that God who condemns the disobedient to eternal death in Act 1 can in Act 2 lavish people like that with life-renewing and transforming generosity and kindness, what the Bible elsewhere calls eternal life? Well, having given you a brief summary of the wondrous story, let's now... Let me now fill you in on the missing and vital factor, letting you into the secret behind this story. I've left out a key word, a key statement in our reading. And that word is, I've mentioned it, the riches of his grace. One of those buzzwords. For some, particularly Americans, the buzzword is freedom. President Biden recently made a big thing of that in a speech in Poland. For the miser, you get a buzzword like money. For Pooh Bear, you get a word that rhymes with money. But grace is a buzzword, or should be, for Christians. It sets them singing, sends them into the superlatives. Amazing grace. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. No wonder, because we're talking about God doing for us precisely the opposite to what we've richly deserved. As we've seen, we deserve eternal death. Instead, we experience eternal life, beginning in the here and now. Instead of judgment, we experience mercy. Instead of God's severity, we experience God's goodness. Instead of God's everlasting wrath, we experience God's everlasting kindness. Even in the here and now, says Paul, how much more, incredibly, wonderfully more, in the ages to come. Forever we will be the naturally unlovable, the objects of love, indeed his great love, as Paul calls it here in our passage. So how can a holy God treat unholy people this way? Well, it's all wrapped up in this word grace. Because in that word grace is the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, the one who experienced my judgment so that I could experience his mercy. When at Calvary, the very light of the world cried out in the thick darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing God's severity so that I might enjoy God's goodness. He was suffering the just condemnation I richly deserved so that, as Paul puts it here, in the coming ages God might show me the kindness I've done everything not to deserve. No wonder people sometimes Say grace is G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, you've heard about your guilty past, what you once were. You've heard about your ongoing present, what you now are. And you've heard about your glorious prospects, one 
you will be one day if your faith is in Christ. But that's more, you've learned the secret behind your never-ending story. And a secret that could be summed up in that one mind-blowing word, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Now we come to the so what. How does all that bear on you this morning and me? What's its significance? Well, it connects with you if you're not yet a Christian. You are a spectator outside watching this drama at the moment, not an actor in this three-act drama. I would say to you, view what you've heard this morning as an invitation. I'm going on now to verses 8 and 9. This is a drama in which the audience is invited to become a part of the story that has a happy ending, a ending that has no ending. Earl's Court, the last Royal Tournament was Earl's Court in 1999. We took our boys there. And at the end, all the children were invited to come on the stage, as well, come on, be part of the action. Well, it's a bit like that here. Only the only way you can get in on the act is there's only one way for you to get in on the act, to be saved, to use Paul's term here. There's nothing you can do to earn a place in this wondrous story. None of us is good enough to pass the audition. That's putting it mildly. But we've already learned the secret is in the word grace. By the enabling grace of God, you're called to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. He's the door into the drama of salvation. There's nothing you can contribute except your sin you need to be saved from. But this story can be your story if you're linked by grace through faith to the Lord Jesus himself. It says there in the text, don't take it from me, you've got to be with, it's with Christ you're saved, verse 4. With Christ, with him, in Christ Jesus, verse 6. His kindness shown to us, verse 7, and we are created in Christ Jesus. We're not saved by a plan, we're saved by a person. And you could say that faith is personal, it's F-A-I-T-H, another acrostic for you, forsaking all I trust him. The gospel invitation, it's more than an invitation, actually. It comes as an authoritative command from the throne room of heaven and earth. A call to lay down your arms of rebellion, to submit to your lawful ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Bible speak, that's a call to repent. With sorrow and contrition, ask God to forgive you, your me-centred past, and with a humble, dependent plea that with God's help you will, with God-enabled determination, walk away from your me-centred way of living and will start to walk a God-centred way of living. No wonder we find Paul stating on one occasion, God commands all everywhere to repent. Suppose I refuse this invitation or refuse this summons. Well, the fact is you'll still be part of the drama You'll be stuck in Act 1. And that's a terrible place to be. I haven't time to elaborate it, but just reflect on that. But suppose you are a Christian this morning. So what can I take from this? Well, you know you're already an actor in this three-act drama. You're not just part of the audience. You're a player and not a spectator. His story is your story. Well, this rehearsal of it, if you like, this telling of it can act as an incentive to you to live out the implications. And there are two things 
that you need to remember. Well, actually, I say live out because faith alone truly saves, but true saving faith is never alone. Faith does things. Faith works. Saving faith translates into serving faith. True faith is a working faith that expresses itself. It works through love, says Paul in another letter. Or to put it negatively, the writer of James says, faith without works is dead. It's my responsibility as a man made alive in Christ's person to work this out. And I've got two incentives to do this. First of all, you've got the resources to do so because it says here, we're coming on to verse 10 now, we are God has created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. We've got to do them, but we can't do them in our own strength. But God enables us. That's the secret behind this never-ending story. God's grace enables us. To each one of us, grace is given, says Paul later on in chapter 4. And then, I can't spend time on that now, but then... Going back to something else about this story, there's a second incentive you can have in the view of this wondrous story to live for Christ. You've got not only the best of resources to do you God, to do so, God's grace enabling you, you also have the best of reasons to do so. Now, Paul doesn't exactly bring this out in this passage, but elsewhere, the Apostle Paul shows us that the best reason to live for this life is a, 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 a grateful and loving response to that wondrous story of the Christ who's died for you. Now, the Apostle Paul, knowing Christ's love for him, had a sort of compelling power, he said. He tells the Christians in Corinth, Christ's love compels us. I could sum up what he's getting at in two, from two, some words of two hymn writers. One who wrote this, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And another hymn writer wrote, his love has animating power. Knowing God's grace towards me moves my heart to respond to him in gratitude and service. But I want to go back to my children's talk to try and flesh this out a bit more. You remember the plot and the resolution? The poor country girl, prisoner of the monster, but a handsome prince comes and rescues her and... Uh, living happily ever after. Let me ask you a question. Do you suppose that the young lady found it difficult to spend the rest of her life with someone who loved her so dearly and was prepared to risk his life for her? Of course, unless the prince were perfect, as none of us is, he must sometimes at least have been a bit relationally challenging, as all of us can be. And the more close we are with people, often the more challenging we can be, as they see us warts and all. But what if our prince was perfect in every way? That he not only risked his life, but had given his life for her, never did or said or thought anything wrong. Well, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? Work it out for yourself. You've got savvy. In a moment, that story will be made very personal for us as we break bread together in the communion of the Lord's Supper. That's, that is, if we, if we are those who are truly repenting of our sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus as our Saviour. So let me recap as I close. If you're not yet a Christian, hearing this never-ending story and its secret should act as an invitation for you to participate in it by repenting of your sins and putting your trust in the Lord Jesus and him alone. If you are a Christian, I trust that this wondrous story is your story. Is it? If it isn't, God is inviting you through me, to make it your story.
to participate in as a player and not just as an uncommitted spectator. This story, the wondrous story, the true story, history, his story, God's story, can be your story by grace through faith. But if I may borrow some words from one of the characters in the film, The Matrix, I can only show you the door. You're the one who has to walk through it. As I said earlier, it's really more than simply an invitation. It's actually a divine summons addressed to you from the very throne of heaven and earth. So dare you, dare I refuse it?